Chapter 7 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Dirksen. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter 7 I Am Startled by a Discovery in this uneasy posture despite the intense cold i continued to sleep soundly during the greater part of the night i was awakened by a horrid dream of some giant shape stalking down the slope of ice to seize and devour me and sat up trembling with horror that was not a little increased by my inability to recollect myself and by my therefore conceiving the canvas that covered me to be the groping of the ogre's hand over my face i pushed the sail away and stood up but had instantly to sit again my legs being terribly cramped a drink of spirits helped me my blood presently flowed with briskness the moon was in the west she hung large red and distorted and shed no light save her reflection that waved in the sea under her like several lengths of undulating red-hot wire my haven was still very tranquil the boat lay calm but there was a deeper tone in the booming sound of the distant surf and a more menacing note in the echoing of the blows of the swell along this side of the coast whence i concluded that despite the fairness of the weather the heave of the deep had whilst i slept gathered a greater weight which might signify stormy winds not very many leagues away the pale stare of the heights of ice at that red and shapeless disk was shocking oh i cried aloud as i had once cried before but for one even but for one companion to speak to i had no mind to lie down again the cold indeed was cruelly sharp, and the smoke sped from my mouth with every breath as though I held a tobacco pipe betwixt my teeth. I got upon the ice and stepped about it quickly, darting searching glances into the gloom to left and right of the setting moon, but all lay bare, bleak, and black. I pulled off my stout gloves with the hope of getting my fingers to tingle by handling the snow but it was frozen so hard I could not scrape up with my nails as much as a half-dozen of flakes would make. What I got, I dissolved in my mouth and found it brackish. However, I suspected it would be sweeter, and perhaps not so stonily frozen, higher up, where there was less chance of the salt spray mingling with it, and I resolved when light came to fill my empty beer-bottles as with salt or pounded sugar for use hereafter that is if it should prove sweet as to melting it i had indeed a tinder-box and the means of obtaining fire but no fuel it seemed as if the night had only just descended so tardy was the dawn outside the slanting wall of ice that made my haven the swell swept past in a gurgling bubbling drowning sound dismal and ghastly as though in truth some such ogre as the monster i had dreamt of lay suffocating there i welcomed the cold colouring of the east as if it had been a ship 
and watched the stars dying and the frozen shore darkening to the dim and sifting dawn behind it, against which the outline of the cliffs ran in a broken streak of ink. The rising of the sun gave me fresh life. The ice flashed out of its slatish hue into a radiant white, and the ocean changed into a rich blue that seemed as violet under the paler azure of the heavens. But I could now see that the swell was heavier than I had suspected from the echo of its remote roaring in the north. It ran steadily out of the northeast. This was miserable to see, for the line of its running was directly my course, and if I committed myself to it in that little boat, the impulse of the long and swinging folds could not but set me steadily southwards, unless a breeze sprang up in that quarter to blow me towards the sun. There was a small current of air stirring, a mere trickle of wind from the northwest. I had made up my mind to climb as high as I could, taking the oar with me to serve as a pole, that I might view the ice and the ocean round about and form a judgment of the weather by the aspect of the sky, of which only the western part was visible from my low strand. But first I must break my fast. I remember bitterly lamenting the lack of means to make a fire, that I might obtain a warm meal and a hot drink and dry my gloves, coat, and breeches, to which the damp of the salt clung tenaciously. Had this ice been land, though the most desolate, gloomy, repulsive spot in the world, I had surely found something that would burn. I sat in the boat to eat, and whilst thus occupied pondered over this great field of ice and wondered how so mighty a berg should travel in such compacted bulk so far north, that is, so far north from the seat of its creation. Now leisurely and curiously observing it, it seemed to me that the north part of it, from much about the spot where my boat lay, was formed of a chain of icebergs knitted one to another in a consolidated range of irregular low steeps. The beautiful appearances of spires, towers, and the like seemed as if they had been formed by an upheaval as of an earthquake, of splinters and bodies of the frozen stuff, for so far as it was possible for me to see from the low shore, wherever these radiant and lovely figures were assembled, I noticed great rents, spacious chasms, narrow and tortuous ravines. Certain appearances, however, caused me to suspect that this island was steadily decaying, and that large as it was, it had been many times vaster when it broke away from the continent about the pole. Naturally, as it progressed northwards, it would dissolve, and the cracking and thunderous noises I had heard in the night, sounds very audible now when I gave them my attention, sometimes a hollow distant rumbling as of some great body dislodged and set rolling far off, sometimes an inward roaring crack or blast of noise like the report of a cannon fired deep down, advised me that the work of dissolution was perpetually progressing, and that this prodigious island which appeared to barricade the horizon 
might in a few months be dwindled into half a score of rapidly dissolving bergs my slender repast ended i pulled the oar out of the crevice and found it would make me a good pole to probe my way with and support myself by up the slope the boat was now held by the mast which i shook and found very firm i put an empty beer bottle in my pocket meaning to see if i could fill it if the snow above was sweet enough to be well tasted and then with a final look at the boat i started the slope was extremely craggy blocks of ice lay about some on top of the others like the stones of which the pyramids are built the white glare of the snow caused these stones at a little distance to appear flat that is by merging them into and blending them with the soft brilliance of the background and i had sometimes to warily walk fifty or sixty paces round these blocks to come at a part of the slope that was smooth i speedily found however that there was no danger of my being buried by stepping into a hollow full of snow for the same hardness was everywhere the snow whether one or twenty feet deep offering as solid a surface as the bare ice this encouraged me to step out and i began to move with some spirit the exercise was as good as a fire and before i was half way up i was as warm as i had ever been in my life i had come to fetch a breath and was moving on afresh when having taken not half a dozen steps i spied the figure of a man he was in a sitting posture his back against a rock that had concealed him his head was bowed and his knees drawn up to a level with his chin and his naked hands were clasped upon his legs his attitude was that of a person lost in thought very easy and calm i stopped as if i had been shot through the heart had it been a bear or a sea lion or any creature which my mind could instantly have associated with this white and stirless desolation i might have been startled indeed but no such amazement could have possessed me as i now felt it never entered into my head to doubt that he was alive so natural was his attitude as of one lost in a mood of tender melancholy i stood staring at him myself motionless for some minutes too greatly astonished and thunderstruck to note more than that he was a man then i looked about me to see if he had companions or for some signs of a habitation but the ice was everywhere naked i fixed my eyes on him again his hair was above a foot long black as ink and the blacker maybe for the contrast of the snow his beard and mustachios which were also of this raven hue fell to his girdle he wore a great yellow flapping hat such as was in fashion among the spaniards and buccaneers of the south sea but over his ears for the warmth of the protection were squares of flannel secured by a very fine red silk handkerchief knotted under his beard and this with his hair and pale cheeks and black shaggy eyebrows gave him a terrible and ghastly appearance from his shoulders hung a rich thick cloak lined with red and the legs to the height of the knees were encased in large boots 
I continued surveying him with my heart beating fast. Every instant I expected to see him turn his head and start to behold me. My emotions were too tumultuous to analyze, yet I believe I was more frightened than gladdened by the sight of a fellow creature, though not long before I had sighed bitterly for someone to speak to. I looked around again, prepared to find another one like him taking stock of me from behind a rock, and then ventured to approach him by a few steps the better to see him. He had certainly a frightful face. It was not only the length of his coal-black hair and beard, it was the hue of his skin, a greenish ashen color, an unspeakably hideous complexion, sharpened on the one hand by the red handkerchief over his ears, and on the other by the dazzle of the snow. Then again there was the extreme strangeness of his costume. I coughed loudly, holding my pole in readiness for whatever might befall, but he did not stir. I then hallowed, and was answered by the echoes of my own voice among the rocks. His stillness persuaded me he was in one of those deep slumbers which fall upon a man in frozen places, for I could not persuade myself he was dead, so living was his posture. This will not do, I thought, so I went close to him and peered into his face. His eyes were fixed. They resembled glass painted as eyes, the colors faded. He had a broad belt round his waist, and the hilt of a kind of cutlass peeped from under his cloak. Otherwise he was unarmed. I thought he breathed, and seemed to see a movement in his breast, and I took him by the shoulder, but in the hurry of my feelings I exerted more strength than I was sensible of. I pushed him with the violence of sudden trepidation. My hand slipped off his shoulder, and he fell on his side, exactly as a statue would, preserving his posture as though, like a statue, he had been chiseled out of marble or stone. I started back, frightened by his fall, in which my fears found a sort of life. But it was soon clear to me his rigidity was that of a man frozen to death. His very hair and beard stood stiff, as before, as though they were some exquisite counterfeit in ebony. Perfectly satisfied that he was dead, I stepped round to the other side of him and set him up as I had found him. He was as heavy as if he had been alive, and when I put his back to the rock, his posture was exactly as it had been, that of one deeply meditating. Who had this man been in life? How had he fallen into this pass? How long had he been dead there, seated as I saw him? These were speculations not to be resolved by conjecture. On looking at the rock against which he leaned, and observing its curvature, it seemed to me that it had formed part of a cave, or of some large, deep hole of ice, and this I was sure must have been the case, for it is certain that, had this body remained long unsheltered, it must have been hidden by the snow. I concluded then that the unhappy man had been cast away upon this ice whilst it was under bleaker heights than these parallels, and that he had crawled into a hollow and perished in that melancholic sitting posture. 
but in what year had his fate come upon him? I had made several voyages into distant places in my time, and seen a great variety of people, but I had never met any man habited as that body. He had the appearance of a Spanish or French cutthroat of the middle of last century, and of earlier times yet. For it may be known to you that the buccaneers of the Spanish Main and the South Sea were great lovers of finery. They had a strange theatric taste in their choice of costumes, which, as you will suppose, they had abundant opportunities for gratifying out of the many rich and glittering wardrobes that fell into their hands. And this man, I say, with his large fine hat, handsome cloak and boots, coupled with the villainous cast of his countenance and the frightful appearance his long hair gave him, rendered him to my notions the completest figure that could be imagined of one of those rogues who earned their living as pirates. Thinking I might find something on his person to acquaint me with his story, or that would furnish me with some idea of the date of his being cast away, I pulled his cloak aside and searched his pockets. His legs were thickly cased in two or three pairs of breeches, the outer pair being of a dark green cloth. He also wore a handsome red waistcoat, laced, and a stout coat of some kind of frieze. In his coat pocket I found a silver tobacco box, a small glass flask fitted with a silver band, and half full of an amber-coloured liquor, hard froze, and in his waistcoat pocket a gold watch shaped like an apple, the back curiously chased and inlaid with jewels of several kinds, forming a small letter M. The hands pointed to twenty minutes after three. A key of a strange shape and a number of seals, trinkets, and the like were attached to the watch. These things, together with a knife, a key, a thick plain silver ring, and some Spanish pieces in gold and silver, were what I found on this man. There was nothing to tell me who he was or how long he had been on the island. The searching him was the most disagreeable job I ever undertook in my life. His iron-like rigidity made him seem to resist me, and the swaying of his back against the rock to the motions of my hand was so full of life that twice I quitted him, frightened by it. On touching his naked hand by accident, I discovered that the flesh of it moved upon the bones as you pull a glove off and on. I had had enough of him and walked away feeling sick. If he had companions, and they were like him, I did not want to see them, unless it was that I might satisfy my curiosity as to the time they had been here. I determined, however, on my way back, to take his cloak, which would make me a comfortable rug in the boat, and also the watch, flask, and tobacco box. For if I was drowned, they could go but to the bottom of the sea, which was their certain destination if I left them in his pockets. And if I came off with them, then the money they would bring me must somewhat lighten the loss of my clothes and property in the brig. I pushed onwards, stepping warily and probing cautiously at every step, 
and earnestly peering about me for after such a sight as that dead man i was never to know what new wonder i might stumble upon about a quarter of a mile on my left that is on my left whilst i kept my face to the slope there was the appearance of a ravine not discernible from where the boat lay when i was within twenty feet of the summit of the cliff the acclivity continuing gentle to the very brow but much broken as i have said i noticed this hollow and more particularly a small collection of ice forms not nearly so large as the other groups of this kind but most dainty and lovely nevertheless they showed as the heads of trees might to my ascent and when i had got a little higher i observed that they were formed upon the hither side of the hollow as though the convulsion which had wrought that chasm had tossed up those exquisite caprices of ice however i was too eager to view the prospect from the top of the cliff to suffer my admiration to detain me in a few minutes i had gained the brow and clambering on to a mass of rock i sent my gaze around end of chapter seven recording by barbara dirksen